Hi, this is the Social Jello with Angelo show. My name's Angelo. I'm a social scientist, surfer, martial artist, and a whole lot of other things. Coming to you live from Kasai City, Japan, the Social Jello with Angelo show. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm here with Anthony Mealy, a Kaju Kenbo instructor. As you saw the title of this podcast, it's going to be about、uh, beating the dead horse part two.、Uh, part one of this podcast was done with、uh, John Hoylo and David Fulvio. And oh boy, bro, I called him bro because I can't pronounce his name right. Rion, Rion Fujirara. Uh, pro wrestler and Aikido practitioner out in Japan. If you want to check that out,、uh, check out my Facebook page、um, or check out the Kaju Kenbo Family Tree, Kaju Kenbo Training Society. I posted it on all those places on YouTube.、Um, it's not my channel, it's my friend's channel that we did that podcast on where we went over the good, the bad, and the ugly of Aikido. But we're bringing it into a part two of this series. But before we get started,、um, Anthony. Share with us your, your martial arts journey. How'd you get into Kaju Kembo? <laughs> oh,、uh, thank you for having me on.、Um, I got into Kaju,、well, I started martial arts in, in 1983 when I went to college.、Uh, I started training with my teacher,、um, Robert Dutilli. At the time,、um, the rap. Dutilli,、uh, Grandmaster Dutilli, he,、um, he trained with a guy named uh, uh, Kale Kano Griffin, who's now, rest in peace,、uh, passed on.、Um, and at the time, we weren't affiliated with Kajukembo.、Uh, so I trained、um, while in college for four years. And then I, during the summers, I would go full time and train at Master Griffin's studio with a lot of the first generation black belts in, in the Springfield, Massachusetts area. And then after I graduated college, I, I moved to Washington, D.C. You might have noticed that my, my, my name, my school name, and my fighting name is Lone Wolf. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You might, you might identify with this because I was, I was away. I was in Washington, D.C. Everybody else was training back in Springfield, and I was by myself. <laughs> so while I, was in, while I was in Washington, D.C., I started studying other arts. So I got into.、Um, A version of Aikido, which was from the Tohei, Tohei branch, the Ki Aikido branch, but this is back in the early 90s. And I did that. I did、um, a form of、uh, Kung Fu, a Shaolin Hung Fut, with a guy from Hong Kong that was the, the, the one who inherited the, the leadership of that. And then I did some, some、uh, Taekwondo, which is really big in, in the DC area, and some Tang Sudo. But,、um, but there was something really interesting about how the Aikido instructors taught Aikido back at that time. And I was real young. I was really aggressive with the, kad, with the Kempo Kaju background.、Um, so I had a tough time kind of calming down and softening what I did, but it was, it was good. And then,、uh, and then I came back, eventually came back to Massachusetts and got more involved with Kaju Kempo. And eventually we. Started working a lot with、um, senior grandmaster Rick Kinji and his, his family and his ohana. And uh,、um, now we're full, full under the, the Kinji、um, ohana and,、uh, and, and um, style of, of Kaju Kembo. 
And then oh, for those so of you good. listening, um, with Grandmaster Dutilla, Kinji, um, the Kinji Ohana is based out of Southern California. Mm-hmm. And um, that's related to my Ohana. We keep saying Ohana for those of you who don't know what Kajuke Ohana means family in Hawaiian. So, like, there's a lot of different branches of Kajikembo, and some sometimes we all get together, sometimes we don't really know each other because we're worlds apart. But in this case, actually, Anthony's Ohana is directly related because my instructor is a professor i guess if i got the title right uh ronnie sagiri and he's coming out of san diego california so oh. we, they, they've they've gone down to uh i think they're like in the la area right so yep. like they, they, yep. yeah they go down they've gone down to la and done some cross training and stuff so yeah um i personally haven't been able to train with kinchi because i was out in japan by the time all that stuff happening but yeah there's definitely a, a connection there <laughs> Right, so so I can relate to you being being away from home base, um, <laughs> and even now I'm in Boston, so most of the guys I train with in Kaju are about an hour and a half away from me, which is you know it's not like Japan versus the the states, but it's and it's not as bad as it was when I was in D.C. But um, <laughs> but since I've been back here in the Boston area, I came back in 2002. Um, I got significantly involved for a while in training with the Aikikai Aikido um, in the Boston area. And there's a specific flavor to that, which is a little different than what the guys that you were, you had the podcast the other day with were talking about because they're in the main branch. But because of the Boston flavor, um, there's a guy that Kanai Sensei was the guy that these guys trained under. And Kanai Sensei was a, a kid, like a young guy that was getting in trouble and he lived with Ushiba and he would oh. get into street fights every week. And that was in, um, so Kanai Sensei. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I shouldn't exaggerate, but I, I've heard stories and he, he, he was living with Ushiba and he was to, you know, he would actually end up getting in altercations and having issues. Oh. Um, and then, and then he ended up eventually coming to the Boston area and uh, was just such a huge influence on the guys that I, some of the guys that I trained with for a while. Huh. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to pause you real quick to let in. Um... So Kanai Sensei was, was this, this was already after you came back from the DC area in Boston. Right. And I, I never, I never trained with him directly. I trained with some guys who, who learned from him personally um, in, in the Framingham, Massachusetts area. So I learned a lot from them and they told me, they told me a lot about Kanai Sensei. They just told me all kinds of, they, he had a huge influence on them and a big influence on Aikido in the Boston area. And then you, you also said by the time you came into the DC area to do Aikido, you already had a cut. Were you already doing Kaju at that point? I was, um, I was at, at that point, I was a black belt in Kempo um, with, and by then we were, we, we had some influences from a guy named Daniel Kane Pye, who's a guy from, um, from Kauai. And he's, he's got some relationships with Ed Parker and some of the other Kempo and Kaju Kempo people. 
And he was um, active in the New England area, I think in the Hartford area. And um, Kali Kaner Griffin studied under Ed Parker. And then, I mean, uh, under Daniel Kane Pye, also he studied Durban Goju, some other stuff. Um, and then by, by the time I moved to DC, we were um, wearing the Ed Parker patch. Okay. Which is, which, and when Ed Parker died, Grandmaster Griffin reaffiliated with Adriano Imperato while he was still alive. And that's how we brought, we got brought back into the Kajukembo family. And that's when my teacher, Robert Dutilli, was very involved with Kajukembo while I was back, while I was away in DC, Washington, DC. And then I came back for a seminar. I think it was 2001. I came back for a seminar in Springfield. I met Adriano Sijo Imperato. Um, he actually spent some time showing me some stuff. And I met with a bunch of black belts, including um, the guy up in Montreal, um, some of the other black belts. It was great. It was a great experience. So that so that's how I kind of got into the started getting into the fold. And then by the 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 late before I think 2009, I think that's when we were we were working a lot with uh, with the Kinjis. Okay. But all but right. in the mid in the middle of all this, the I had the the benefit of having some judo training with with Robert Tutilli under Master Griffin and then having the um, Aikido influences when I was in DC as well as in Boston, which totally different flavors, but really I thought helped me um, put it into context. So I have some different perspectives just because of the, um, the way I came at it. And I didn't start at Aikido first. And when you, when you got into Aikido in the DC area, what mm -hmm. were they doing? Were they sparring? Um, well, that's the thing. The thing about Aikido. All right. Well, say so they, they don't spar, but, but I think a fair way of putting Aikido is I, I think a more, a more fair way of putting what you do when you're in Aikido is you're doing drills. So John Halkerman will call them drills. He does. He loves drills. He's a big fan of doing drills. You don't have to hurt each other in order to learn. That's what you do in Aikido. The problem with Aikido is that some practitioners in Aikido don't understand the practical limitations of what they're doing, or, or they may understand it because some of these guys are black belts in other styles, and some of them do kendo, so they, they, they do weapons, um, and they're really good they don't explain why they're doing what they're doing. So as a student, you don't always fully understand what you're doing and why, but the drills themselves form habits that are very valuable if, and when you eventually figure out how to put it together with other stuff. So, so you don't, you don't spar, um, but you do, there is contact and there's real throwing. I mean, you know, you're throwing each other, you're um, and when I, when I did Ki Aikido under the Tohei branch in Northern Virginia in the DC area, that was different than what it evolved to be later because Tohei got really into the kind of the internal and the, the health aspects and less into the practical applications. Cause there was, a, there was something about the way Tohei did things. He was the kind of the head instructor before Ushiba's son took over. And then there was a split but Tohei was a, a judo black belt before he got into Aikido. 
So he had a um, hit a very intense, very powerful grappling style, um, but it was very um, it was very much based in in kind of relaxation and centering, and um, and he had this way of being very powerful without using a lot of um, energy, and that was his whole thing. So have you heard of the um, unbendable arm? I haven't heard of that. Can you? So that's a key that Aikido concept. That's something that he made a big deal about. So which he was he was always working on key. So he was always working on the ability to to um, extend your energy and learn how to. It's a biomechanical thing as much as it's a relaxation and a mental thing. Um, it's not a magical kind of thing, but but it, from a metaphorical standpoint, they describe it this way: like you you you're cha- you're, you're basically your key's going into your your, your uh, one point, which is your Dantian below your navel, and then it comes into your body and then it flows, you extend it. So if I stand in a position like this and I'll tell somebody to come up to me and try to bend my arm and if they take their, you know, they could be big, strong and they can take their arm, their hands and put it on my elbow, like right in the crook of my elbow and then, and then put, put my hand on their shoulder and they try to bend my arm, they won't be able to but I'm completely relaxed. So there's something about extending that energy and relaxing and having the right, the right positioning, the biochemic biomechanical positioning where you you're incredibly strong and powerful And the applications of that. Once you learn that are how you you're able to be more relaxed. So when you're grappling or you're doing judo, you're doing different things with different people and they try to they try to muscle you and they literally tell me, oh my God, you're, you're bigger than me. You're heavier than me and you're muscling me. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just relaxing. And um, so it, you're, you're, you're able to get strength and kind of leverage when you learn how to do that. So there's some concepts that I learned from that. Um, they actually, in some of those same concepts translate into kendo where you're, when you're, when you're sword fighting and somebody hits your sword you extend that energy through your sword and no one can move that sword. It's just, it's like, and I'm not an expert at the sword stuff. We, we worked a little bit on that when I was in, in Aikido in Northern Virginia, but the, he was really big on, on that aspect of it and on the ability to like, if you're, if you're, you're, you're staying under, um, if you're staying with one point and you're on your, your weight is under your one point. So you kind of stand in a way that, you're you're more rooted in the ground and then your upper body is relaxed so it's it's supple so it's like a if you ever try to try to grab a baby or like a toddler and they don't want to be picked up and then they kind of like flop around and and it's like literally like you can't control them like it's like they have this power over you right it's kind of that concept where if someone tries to push you or tries to 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 do something to you if you're if you're relaxed and you're, you're, you're centered and then your upper body just goes with it, it's, it's not easy for someone to, to take you and throw you or push you over. So that's what I learned from that kind of that perspective. And then when I came back up to the, the Boston area and I did Aikido, um, they were more, they didn't get into any of that. And they were more about going through the motions and then practicing and drilling. Long, long answer to your questions as to whether they spar. No, no. And like, <clears throat> One of the things I, I, I noticed when I started doing the podcast was uh, across styles and across sports, looking for looking for trends. And this thing that you talk about 
breathing techniques that focus on the navel, even though it sounds like voodoo uh, and mumbo jumbo, the one right now, the, the, what is it? Uh, Mike McCastle, if anybody is interested, the limits of human endurance with Mike McCastle on the Sternius Life podcast with Stefan Kesting. Um, this guy just broke, uh, he's like a, he's a former Navy SEAL, the list goes on, but he's made it his life goal to beat all these uh, strength and endurance records. And um, his recent one was he immersed himself in ice for two hours and 40 minutes, beating wow. the world record, beating John Wolf's record about being submerged in ice and one of the things they started talking about is the same thing that you just mentioned this whole this what they call fire fi- uh dragon breathing or mm. fire breathing and it's a it's a technique that comes from i think tibetan monks i think tibetan monks if i might be mistaken on the tibetan part but there's definitely something that goes back it's called tumo breathing and visualization okay. techniques and again it's like this weird thing where you see it across different styles this idea of of breathing and visualization and using psychology to visualize like you said right now you were saying about the baby you know you relax like a baby and um and then it makes it harder for you to pick up and he was talking about how he'd visualize a small fire within his belly and he Mm -hmm. had all these biometrics plugged up into him to make sure he would because he essentially will die like (laughs) any normal person submerged in ice will get hypothermia and die and the way he, right. he, he hacked his body in two months to do this record was he learned these breathing techniques. He did some research and then he plugged himself up. He had a bunch of uh, medical staff on hand as he dipped himself in a big old thing of ice and the heard yeah. turned to melt. And it was measuring his body temperature and his body temperature would start to drop and the oxygen levels in his blood would start to drop. And he'd start focusing more on visualizing this fire, he kept saying, in his stomach, in his stomach. Wow. and breathing into his stomach and literally they can see the oxygen levels start rising and his temperature will start get balancing out again so there is something there there's something physical there about the the power of the connection between your yeah. mind and your body and breathing there's yeah. definitely something there across styles so like if aikido is kind of tapping into that from a scientific perspective it does make sense um i think it just gets tough when people start describing it from a non-scientific perspective that's where you start losing people like <laughs> when it does start sounding magical it, the people that i mean it'll attract right there's some people that do love magic right there, there's there was the, like supernatural stuff and that that'll bring them in but there's all those people that are completely turned off by it and that's where they're getting yeah, well, that there, <laughs> there was a there was a technique in ki keto that they were doing back in the early 90s where you would um you know someone would come after you you would evade and they'd go by and then you'd come back with a technique at the person's face and there was no contact. And then the person would go and fall down. But it wasn't so much that it, it, the point was that there, there doesn't need to be any contact because of this, because of the expectation that you're going to get hit and the way you react. It wasn't like some of these, you know, chi things where people are like doing stuff at you from a distance. Um and I, Ushiba was really good at that, where he had this technique. It's kind of like where someone tries to, to punch you or stab you with a sword or something. He had this way of, of mo- moving at the last split second so it just missed you. And then he would then take that momentum and use it against you. So he had, so there were some 
So he would basically kind of entice you to go after him and then use, try to manipulate you to attack him. So there's an, there's an element of that to Aikido where a lot of people are like, they're, and they're right. People aren't just going to completely commit and attack you, especially if they have training in martial arts. They're not going to do things to an Aikido practitioner the way, um, the way a Shotokan karate guy would or the way a sword guy would, right? Um, because people know from their training that you can't just go after somebody because then they're going to use that and throw you or do something. So, um, but there are ways that Aikido guys are pretty good at manipulating you into doing what they, what they want you to do. So there is an element of that, that, you know, I'm not an expert at that, but so there's some layers to it. Right. I mean, I, but at the end of the day, like the other day in the podcast, I really enjoyed it. Um, one of the guys said, you know, Aikido is a finishing art and the guy who founded Aikido was, was a security expert. He had some experience. He had sword ex expertise. Um, he was, he was, there was a very martial aspect. Aikido is very pure and it, it has this reputation of being kind of a, a gentleman's art, but there's a very martial aspect to the way he taught and to what he did and how hard he was on his students. I mean, his students got beat up. It wasn't a joke. So, and, and they actually had to use what they did on the street, you know, learn what they knew on the street, which, which is not what they wanted for a reputation. So there are elements to that that you, you hear sometimes in stories. Um, but the, 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 the whole notion that it was a finishing art was really interesting because there are, there are people that are judo experts, people that are karate experts, people that have black belts in their styles. And then they come and now they learn weapons. They learn how to, you know, how to relax. They learn how to, how to use footwork, how to, you know, um, he was really big on footwork and he had some, some weapons forms where you, you, you kind of step, step offline, step out of the way, um, use people's uh, momentum against them. And then, and then there were some sword and some um, Joe, Joe uh, types of forms. Where what's, he, what's a, a Joe? A Joe. It's like, a, I think it's slightly shorter and slightly harder than a bow. And um, there's a 32 step form that he, that they teach. And then it can be translated to sword as well. So that um, it's really, if you look up some of the videos on YouTube, it's really, really interesting. Especially if you look up the applications where they're actually using it on people. He, Ushiba really taught some really cool stuff. And he, he had same thing that my teacher's teacher did where he taught certain black belts, certain things. So there's certain people under Ushiba that are really good at sword and that are really good at the Joe and really good at different weapons. And they all had their expertise and then they all had, you know, things that they would emphasize, but he would just teach different people. And then they would, each one of them would kind of create their, their specialties around these areas that he would teach them. Who I lost you. Oh, no, I, I muted myself. Oh, I I okay. Found, I think I found a picture of a Joe staff so I can show everyone who's watching on on YouTube real quick. So this is a Joe staff that I found online. Um, it seems to be 50 inches. So it's, it's a little smaller than your average bow staff, it looks like. Yeah. All right. So that's that's what, that's the kind of... And I remember we would practice it in class. This was up in the Boston area. It was awesome because when you when you do when you do aikido there's this tendency and if you've done if you've done grappling or judo you know how when you're when you're grappling if you if you let your arm come out you're 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 now vulnerable right 
if someone wants to take you, if someone wants to do an arm bar on you or take you or take you down or even the kaju techniques that we use, right? But if you're, if you can stay here and you can keep, you keep that angle constant, right? You have incredible leverage and then you use your hips, right? So if you have a Joe and then you go to, you go to get somebody and then someone grabs onto the Joe. So this is 50 inches, right? So there's a technique and I don't remember exactly how you're holding it, but you're holding the Joe and then someone grabs onto the Joe and they're, they're going to try to take it around, take it away from you. Well, if you know how to do what you're doing and you know how to use your biomechanics, you can throw that person literally their entire body weight now that they're holding onto the Joe and we would throw them. And then, then we would roll out of that, you know? So it was, it was really, it's so subtle, but not subtle. Like the things you can do just understanding the little things, you know? Um, and I think that's where, when you're, when you're already a black belt in a martial art and then you add those things in now, when you're doing one of the self-defense combinations that we do in Kaju, and then you, you, you tweak what you're doing a little bit and apply that. Now, when you go throw somebody, you're like, wow, like it's easier, you know, it's, now, that's I think, what I, that's what I like about it. I think, so it's, I think it's interesting when you talk about like the origins of the art did have sparring, did have more contact. And then as time went by, it became what it is now. And this is not, this is not, this is nothing new. I mean, this is, this has happened to several martial arts throughout time as a society mm -hmm. goes from being more violent to becoming more civilized. Their martial arts tend to start going towards less contact, but, um, even in the past, this is a Japanese martial art we're talking about here. And if we go back even further to uh, Miyamoto Musashi, mm -hmm. in, in his book of the Five Rings would talk about, and I've mentioned this on the show before, in his book, and for those of you who don't know, Miyamoto Musashi was, um, was a samurai that was alive and wrote a book uh, that was published, and you can still find it on Amazon. And he was, he was around, he was alive during the period in Japan where the samurai were being disbanded and they were kind of going into more of a no more shoguns, no more of that stuff. They're going more into a peaceful era where they wouldn't need samurai anymore. And people were kind of transitioning towards the end of his life where they weren't even allowed to have swords out in public anymore. So he wrote this book about martial arts. And one of the things he talked about in that book was the same thing, watching this era where all, all of their martial arts at the time were preparing them for war with swords and knives and, mm -hmm. and you had these people who were teaching martial arts who were now no longer really applying the martial part as he felt so like he he felt you know they were there there was more contact there was it was coming from war they were preparing people for war and now he was also noticing just like nowadays he's noticing these guys that would show up that claimed to be fighting in these wars that he's like, I was at that battle. I never saw that guy. Like, <laughs> where did this yeah. guy come from? Suddenly he's got this huge school, you know, all these people he's teaching. He's suddenly teaching Bushido. Right. And I don't know. I've never saw this guy in my life. And, you know, so it's kind of like the same, this argument that people have nowadays about modern, modern combat. Cause at his time he was coming from modern combat and he was right. one of the people that in his time, that was modern. Now it's ancient. But this, this little conversation that I have on this podcast and these, these arguments I see people having on YouTube, this is nothing new. Like people have been having this. That's not real. That would never work. That's been happening for a very long well, time. The, the problem I have, I, I'm going to say this, and I, I think this is really important to say. I have a problem with people that don't understand a technique. They see it once 
And then they say, okay, we're going to test this technique. And then they, there's two people, they create a video and they test the technique and it doesn't work. And they go, see, it doesn't work. It sucks. I'm like, you have no idea how to actually do that technique. And you're proving it doesn't work. Just open your mind and learn and, and have an open mind because sometimes maybe you just don't understand, you know, like I, there's a, there's a TikTok is like a weird addictive thing. Oh, I no, no, not to, I there's a guy on that, but he's a Taekwondo guy and he's got, got MMA experience. He's a Taekwondo guy, but he's got MMA experience. And he's like, people say that these, these kicks don't work. And one of the techniques, one of the kicks is like the, you know, the, 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 the kick from, you know, karate kid. And, um, and basically it's just a jump, jump front kick. Right. So he shows an actual MMA fights where these kicks work. And I'm like, that's my, and I, and I made a comment. I'm like, that's the thing. People don't understand how to use a particular kick or a particular technique. And then they say, well, it doesn't work. And I'm like, well, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it doesn't work. You know, it's, and it's the same thing in Kaju, like all the stuff we learn, our instructors say it all the time. And it's true. Sometimes it works for me and doesn't work for someone else or, or you don't like it or you haven't figured out like my, my judo judo sensei, he's like, he's like, Oh, that throw. He's like, I can't do that throw worth crap. He's like, but there's another black belt who does it really well, you know? So it, at the end of the day, it's, it's, we're still here to learn and, and some of the stuff actually works. So if you, if you stick around and try it, eventually you like, you create gold from some of these things. So, but I don't want to go too long, but there's something I, I think is relevant to what you're saying and relevant to what we're saying is it, it's, it's a story. That's a true story. My family, my great grandmother, she made this um, sauce, clam sauce. And whenever she made the clam sauce, my uncle, my uncle Eddie would look at her and watch her and he, he wanted to learn how to make this clam sauce. It was, it was like his favorite dish and it's his grandmother that made it and she's from Sicily. And I was like, a, so she would take this wet towel and put it over the top of the clam sauce and cook it. And um, so every time he would make this clam sauce, he'd make sure he had this wet towel. And then one time he was at my aunt's house and she was making it. And she didn't have a wet towel over the pot. He freaked out. He's like, what are you doing? You got to have to put the wet towel. And then he saw his grandmother the next time. And he's like, he's like, Nana, why do you put the wet towel over the pan? She's like, because I, I lost the pot cover. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of stuff we do that we don't really know why we do what we do, you know, and sometimes it has nothing to do with anything. So that's, that's true also, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think, and again, like it really has to do, it really has to do with um, where, where and why, where and why are you doing what you're doing and what, what's the application and why are you mm -hmm. doing it? Um, Cause I think a lot of people, they, they kind of forget that when you get into this, it, it really depends again, what, what, why are you doing it for me? I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and it's gotten to a point where I no longer care about techniques i no longer care about techniques is i'm i do techniques but like I, I cringe when i when someone brings me in the side during open man they're like can you show me how i should escape full mount show me how to escape full mount and i look at i look at the guy i'm like you're a blue belt you know how to you know how to escape full mount why, why do you want me to show you how to escape full mount you already know how to do this like why do you want me to explain this to you again so like, oh, i want to do it the way you do it and i'm like I don't, I'm not going to show you something magically new, right? It's not like I'm going to have some new way to do it. 
I, I'm probably going to show you something you all have already seen. And, um, and I showed him what I, one of the ways I'm like, here's, here's, here's a variation that I like to do that I don't see very often. Like I do it quite a bit, but I don't see other people doing it. So here, try this out. Mm. And I was surprised when he said, he's like, oh, I've never, I've never seen that before. And I'm like, okay, I guess like, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't see my art as an accumulation of techniques. I see it as an accumulation of principles. So I don't try to collect techniques. I try to collect principles and then other techniques break from that. Cause then mm. when I'm, when I'm sparring, especially when I'm sparring and things are going, if I'm going hard with someone, I'm not really thinking I want to get them in ABC technique. I, I'm looking at what opportunity arises and what I'm going to do with that. So, mm -hmm. I, so with what you're talking about, like accumulating as much, not so much the techniques, but the principles behind it, the ideas behind it. Right. So you're about, when you talk about Aikido, like they're putting their hands up and they're, they're, they're doing la last minute changes and moving out of the way last minute. Um, when we talk about that, this is the same thing as in boxing. When you talked about like having your hands centered here and not having your hands out, they say that in different styles of boxing, you always have your hands centered. So like, again, it's more mm -hmm. about like concepts and principles. But before I keep dragging on, Mickey, I love the background. I really like, I'm digging the, the, the blue mermaid bear. That is awesome. Are you? <laughs> but, hey, Anthony, nice meeting you. Nice um, to meet you. Don't let this fool you, bro. This is an improvised weapon. <laughs> All right? It could work. You, that statement Everything. alone, I think, defines Kajukembo right there. <laughs> Everything is a weapon behind me, bro. Don't worry, I got it. No, so, I, don't, I don't. I don't try to waste any no more energy, bro. I can't. I can't go two minute rounds no more. Three, five minute rounds, whatever. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, so what did I miss, guys? Sorry about the traffic. Uh, no, no worries, no worries. So, for those of you listening, we just got joined by Coach Mickey Lopez coming out of Desal Boxing Academy, also Kaja Kembo instructor. Um, coming out of. Southern California, where are you, where are you, where Northern, at? Northern California. Northern, Northern, Northern California. California. My bad, my bad, my bad, my bad. Northern California. And Anthony, you were mentioning you're in the Boston area, right? Yes. All right, cool. So this is coming from Boston. Uh, well, we're pretty much, uh, right now, we just got done talking about Anthony's history with Kaju Kempo, Kempo, Ed Parker Kempo, and then um, mixing it up with some Aikido. And he then we got into the, we started talking about the history of martial arts a little bit. And now, uh, now you're here with us, so I guess we're going to start transitioning to part two of the podcast. So for those of you listening right now, thank you very much for listening to Anthony's Martial Arts Journey. If you want to see our discussion about gross motor skills versus fine motor skills in martial arts, I do ask you to join us for part two of this podcast, which is going to be titled Gross Motor Skills versus Fine Motor Skills in self-defense and fighting. All right, so thanks for catching Chosen Jello with Angelo. I'll see you in part two of this episode.